Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World from Radio New Zealand National. Now on Our Changing World, Jason Tilianakis is a professor in terrestrial ecology at the University of Canterbury and a Rutherford Discovery Fellow. Alison Balance catches up with him to find out about his research, which is grappling with some of the big issues in ecology. My work is on trying to understand how ecosystems respond to changes in the environment and how that translates into changes in the way ecosystems function and things like how they produce food or how they recycle nutrients or those sorts of things. So what kind of environmental change are you thinking about? We're looking quite generally at a, a suite of different changes. So one of the biggest drivers of changes in, in biodiversity or in uh, ecosystems is land use change, the conversion of natural habitats to crop production or, um, or timber production. But other changes going on are things like climate change or uh, species invasions, uh, nitrogen cycle getting modified by humans inputting nitrogen and fixing nitrogen artificially, uh, increased carbon dioxide. All of those processes are all happening at the same time and also having cumulative effects on the way ecosystems work. So climate change gets a lot of press, mm. but that's just one kind of change, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And I think one of the biggest problems is that the, the response of ecosystems to different drivers are not independent. So we can't push a system to almost the limit um, with land use change and expect it to still respond fine to climate. So these uh, so-called interactions among the different drivers of, of environmental change are, are potentially a really big problem. This is a very complex area then. You've got a whole lot of overlapping things and I imagine it would be actually hard enough to measure the impact of any one of them. It is and the big problem is that you could measure the impact of each one of them separately and then find that their combined impact is not the same. <laughs> yeah, so you might get synergistic effects or they might even, who knows, cancel each other out. Exactly. We've found pretty much all of those different combination effects. Sometimes the effects can just be additive so you can test each one separately and it gives you the same answer for other kinds of ecosystem change the the combined effect is synergistic so you get worse outcomes than if they each driver was on its own and then other situations they can somewhat cancel each other out or they both impact um, the environment in the same way so that once the damage is done by one the other one doesn't do anything additional to it. So how do you go about measuring change? There are various ways to do that. Sometimes we do it experimentally so we had an experiment up at the University Field Station at Cass which is an alpine region near Arthur's Pass. For that we literally warmed up the ground so we put heating cables underground and uh, warmed up the plots to see how climate change would affect um, communities and at the same time we added nitrogen um, to some of the plots and not to the others so we could see how the interactive effects of those two changes um, affected the, the plant growth, the insects that feed on the plants, the natural enemies of those insects and also soil processes and soil microbes. And what were the results of that experiment? We've had lots of different results. The first thing uh, we found was that 
under those uh, conditions of change you get the the herbivores so the things that are commonly pests on on crops tend to win out so they increase in abundance much more than um, their natural enemies who can't keep pace with them and also they end up benefiting more than the plants that they're feeding on so you get the the food pyramid of of plants to herbivores to carnivores gets squashed at the bottom basically does that settle out over time? Not during the course of the experiment. We ran it for a couple of years, but over time there would have to be some limitation on the herbivores when they had less plant food to eat. But we can't really say, unfortunately, how, how that would um, persist in the long term. But it does give you a hint that as temperatures rise the balance of things is going to change and in that case not to the benefit of someone who's running a production landscape no, for example. No, ab- absolutely and another big problem is that many people don't realise a lot of the carbon that's in the earth cycle is stored in soils so we, we think a lot about planting forests to sequester carbon and to make up for the carbon dioxide produced by, by humans but soil carbon is actually a major store of carbon and the soil microbes essentially breathe in and breathe out so they take in carbon from plant material and they sequester it into the soil but they can also during their feeding or their breathing they they respire carbon dioxide just like animals do so the balance between the amount they're sequestering and the amount that they're breathing out essentially has a a huge influence on the whole carbon balance of the earth and it's estimated that that breathing in and out moves about six times as much carbon as all of the cars in the world so if that process changes even slightly, then it's going to have huge ramifications for um, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and then for climate change. And unfortunately, that process is temperature dependent. So as climate warms, they perform their processes more quickly and that causes them to then respire more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and drive more climate change. So there's there's this potential for feedbacks that climate can make itself worse and once we start going down certain paths of climate change that's what makes it really difficult to undo that that harm later. The thing that comes to mind then is is methane in the northern hemisphere and the permafrost areas as the permafrost melts then we're getting this huge input of methane into the environment which is speeding up the rate of melting. Exactly, yep. So there are, there are several examples of, of such feedbacks in, with the climate system and um, changes to albedo and things like that. There are all kinds of potential pitfalls in the future. As well as running your own experiments, have you also been collectively looking at similar experiments that people have been doing around the globe and, and pooling the results of those together? Yes, so we, we do um, quite a bit of that sort of work as well, trying to understand the uh, general patterns and how different organisms respond to, to change rather than the nuances of each individual species. So you could study one herbivore species, for example, and find it responds in one way. You could find a different species responds in a different way. So what we've been trying to do is collate all of that information across different studies and say, what's the general principle? You'll always get some exceptions, but what's the, the general rule? And... Have you got any <laughs> results from that kind of work? Um, one of the general rules is that there aren't many general rules, <laughs> which makes things difficult. We see a huge variability across different studies, across different organisms. Um, depending on what else is happening in the environment will, can determine how they respond to any particular change. But there are certain things, like we see more 
pathogens, for example, having more impact on, on animals, so more diseases under a lot of environmental changes. That seems to be a fairly common uh, trend. We find that things like pollination tend to be negatively affected by a, a bunch of different environmental drivers. So there are some warning signals of things that we need to be aware of, but others that it's really hard to generalise. So let's talk a bit more about pollinators because I know that's one of your particular areas of mm. interest. Let's start by having a look at where, where we are. We're sitting on the University of Canterbury campus and we're, we happen to be sitting on a lawn. So we're in a highly modified <laughs> landscape. So we're not seeing a lot going on, but what, what would I be expecting to see here? Would I be expecting to see basically introduced honeybees or is there a whole suite of native pollinators that is still surviving in a modified landscape like this? That's a good question because a lot of people often associate bees with just honeybees. Many people don't realise there are in fact many different kinds of bees um, worldwide, tens of thousands uh, in New Zealand more in the order of tens, but both bees and various flies and even some beetles and other kinds of insects can be important pollinators and it's known that having a diverse assemblage of different pollinators gives you better pollination, better crop production for example, than if you just rely on on honeybees as your single pollinator. But the problem is that we can easily move honeybees around and we can cultivate them in hives and things like that, but the native bees are much more difficult to manage because we can't just put out nests of them or, or something like that. Often they're solitary nesters so they don't have a big hive or anything like that and that makes them much more difficult to manage. So we've become very dependent on honeybees, haven't we? We have and we're in some ways making ourselves more dependent on it. So if, for example, we do agriculture in a very intensive way and we um, use a lot of insecticides, we harm our native bees, potentially also our honeybees, and then if anything goes wrong with the honeybees, we've essentially lost all of our, our insurance. We've got no backup that can take it over because the, the native bees require natural habitats to nest in. Um, they require different kinds of resources at different times of year, so they need, um, need to have flowers available not just when that particular crop's flowering, but... Um, but much longer, um, and also they, they can be knocked back by the chemicals uh, used in agriculture as well. So we do a lot of things in the way we produce food that um, potentially harm pollinators, even though we're increasingly realising that we need them to keep producing food and, and do so at a, at a high, high yield. We hear a lot in the media about honeybees and the plight of honeybees. So... <laughs> How real is their plight? It certainly is real. There are a lot of different threats to honeybees, um, things like varroa mite most people are aware of, and that's currently being managed in New Zealand, but it's probably only a matter of time before they become resistant to the chemicals we use to control them, so there will be an ongoing problem of, of managing varroa, and it's something that we can't ever just forget about and, and it'll go away. Then there are things like colony collapse disorder and, and of course, the negative effects of, of certain pesticides particularly the neonicotinoid um, pesticides that are heavily discussed in Europe at the moment. So all of those threats are quite real. Whether it means we'll see an end to honeybees, that, that could be quite some time away, I think, but still there will be good years and there will be bad years, and we do need to make sure we have enough other pollinators so that our crops don't suffer in the bad years. It's a, one of those ecologically complex problems. People want a simple solution. It's this one thing, therefore mm. we can fix it. But actually it's a whole lot of... Th overlapping things. Yes, that's exactly right. So, And that's a classic example of when you have multiple stresses affecting organisms that their combined effect can be much worse than their, their single effect and much more difficult to manage. But I, I think even if honeybees were doing great, um, there's been a lot of research showing that having other bees as well does better. 
So I think even in the best case scenario we need other pollinators if we want to get the maximum yield out of our crops and more so if there's a risk that honeybees might have, have troubled times. And doing that is, is a bit difficult in a monoculture and I'm, I'm thinking of the almond industry in mm -hmm. California where they ship in billions of yeah. bees, like millions of hives, ship them all across the states just to pollinate this massive monoculture. Yes. Whereas actually to put some resilience in that system you'd need it to be a much more biodiverse at a number of levels. Yes, that's exactly right. So the, this concept of resilience is something we're working on uh, quite a lot and trying to understand how you can, even without knowing what the next problem's going to be or the next threat's going to be, how can we make ecosystems structured in such a way that they're able to handle all kinds of slings and arrows that might, might come their way. So uh, things like a diversity of habitats in a landscape, not just having expansive monocultures, maintaining soil quality and, and production systems so that they stay productive in the long term, all of these sorts of things, managing water, they're all part of keeping the whole system functioning in the long term. What do we risk ending up with if, if we don't make our ecosystems more resilient? The easiest answer to that question is that we'll um, potentially lose the productivity of a lot of our crops and we'll potentially lose food as a result of it. So about three quarters of the world's food crops depend on insect pollination. In New Zealand they're estimated to be worth I think about five billion dollars a year. So harm to them for example will, will bring a, a direct economic cost. But then there are examples like the dust bowls in the, the US plains where their tillage practices or their ploughing were, were not done in a sustainable way. It made the topsoil very um, vulnerable to winds or to erosion. They got big dust storms and now the damage there is, is probably never likely to be undone. So the threats are very real and we do have to manage the environment, both the productive and the native environment, in a way that tries to minimise these threats. There was Jason Tilianakis from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Canterbury and Imperial College London. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.